If you like sports talk with absolutely no sports talk, welcome to the Just Not Sports podcast. This is the show where a couple guys who work in sports talk to the people who play and cover sports about anything they like, just not sports. On today's show, we are going to talk to longtime NBA player and analyst Scott Pollard about his recent stint on Survivor and whether a rich and famous athlete really needs to go hungry for a month in the pursuit of more money and fame. And we'll also talk magic with Eagles long snapper John Dornboss, who has amazing card tricks and some serious hot takes for that masked magician who several years ago ruined everyone's tricks. I'm your co-host, Brad Burke. I'm a sports marketer in Chicago. Joining us this week on the phone from our Brooklyn Worldwide headquarters, it's our Emmy-winning sports TV producer, Gareth Hughes. Gareth are you in or out on David Blaine, Street Magician? Uh, I'm in on that, but more than that, I'm way in on Joe Bluth, Illusionist. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I'll say this about David Blaine. When I saw him doing street magic, I was blown away. And then when he was like, my for my next trick, I'm going to not die in a block of ice for a week. I was like, maybe go back to scaring Deion Sanders with the card <laughs> tricks, but that could just right. be me. David but, Blaine, if you're listening, thank you for just being in the recent Louis C.K. series, Horace and Pete. I mean, that's kind of a random appearance, but it was nice to know you're still alive and not dead in a block of ice. I did not watch Horace and Pete. I did listen to a very lengthy uh, podcast Bill Simmons did with Louis C.K. about it, though. Gareth, did you like this series or no? Oh, I didn't watch a lick of it, but I listened to a very lengthy interview that he did with Mark <laughs> Marin, and I loved that. <laughs> so we consume I consume most television through podcast interviews about said television, but that's just because I have a kid, so what do you know? All right, so not with us this week. Our other co-host, Adam Allard, uh, on the road for work. Adam, we miss you, but never fear. Ladies and gentlemen, put your hands together for Mr. Joe Reed. Joe. If you dressed like illusionist Chris Angel, would women ever talk to you? Maybe more than they do now. I don't know. Uh, Gareth, He's got jo- good hair, though. Gareth, Joe's wearing shorts at the office today. I have no problem with that. Yeah, baby. So Gareth and I had a lengthy debate online about shorts in which he was telling me that he was worried someone from the office was going to snipe at him for wearing shorts. And I just was all caps like, you wear shorts, bro? How old are you? Eight? I like I could be outside in a hundred degree heat, put in a stone patio like I was this weekend, well, in eighty degree heat. And I'm rocking like long sleeves to get out of the sun and jeans. No man. way. Gotta, yeah, br- gotta breathe. It. If we're keeping tabs on the two on the things that Brad and I have beef over, they are number one, usage of the Oxford comma. And number two, the wearing of shorts. Add it to the beef list. You want to use an Oxford comma? Go back to England, all right, bro? In America, <laughs> in America, we do a little thing called AP style, and we don't waste space. All right, so as you know, moving on, on this show, we do not just, in, we don't just bring people on. We invite them to come on publicly. This is the process we call slamming the hammer, where we invite anyone in the sports world who we have deemed 
worthy of an interview because they've shown an interest in something. So, Gareth, let's start with you. Who do you want to slam the hammer to, buddy? Yeah, this week I did a shoot with the New England Patriots, and during that shoot I got to meet a very interesting gentleman, uh, Mr. Marty the Black Unicorn Martellus Bennett. And given that this show involves magic, I figured what is more magical than a black unicorn? Uh, Martellus Bennett has a lot of interests. He has a lot of things to talk about. I honestly found him one of the more refreshing and engaging athletes I've spoken to in a while. I know that, you know, Chicago fans, uh, Giants fans may have... We talk about off-the-field things. We talk about not sports. And so from that standpoint, I love talking to him. Told me about an app he's working on, the alternative rock band he used to be in, and the children's book he's going to be releasing in about a month or so. So my hammer is to Martellus Bennett. I want to read that children's book to my kids and do a video of it, and let's have some fun. So to the Black Unicorn, come on the show. Talk about all of your varied interests. I love athletes reading children's books. I agree with you. We need to have some fun with that um, because I, I I just think it's it's cool. Uh, there's a few of them that I I have that, uh, that are good. I actually think Martellus Bennett is great. I live in Chicago. Uh, the Bears are not my primary team. They're kind of like my, my, my NFC squad. You know, I'll cheer for them against anyone but the Bengals, but uh, I loved watching him play, and I loved listening to him. He was a very thoughtful guy in his interviews, so I think he'd be great. Fascinating dude. Uh, Gareth, what's more magical than uh, what's more magical than a black unicorn? Two spotted griffins. Uh, Blake Griffin and... <laughs> well, this didn't work. Daryl Griffin? Daryl Griffith, right? We're cutting this. All right, moving yeah. board. All right, Joe, stepping in for Adam. Pressure's on, my friend. I know. Who do you want to slam the hammer to? I can feel it. Um, so do you guys know what the curtain of distraction is? Have you heard of this thing? Uh, no. Uh, so it's this thing that the student no. student uh, section at Arizona State basketball games do. Oh, yeah, I've oh, seen this. I love it. Yeah, I love so it. it's the student group. There's like a small organization that student it's run by students and it, they sort of represent the student group. They're called the 942 crew, 942 crew. And for people who don't know behind, um, you know, the the basketball hoop at their basketball games in the arena, they have this like, you know, curtain sort of shape hanging on, you know, PVC piping or something, and when opponents are taking free throws, they will, you know, whip open the curtains, and you never know what's going to be behind the curtain. And sometimes it's students dressed up as weird characters. And I think it was late last year, um, it might have been this season. Michael Phelps made an appearance, uh, you know, with these fake gold medals in his speedo, and it's yeah, just well, kind of he a, was training out there. That's right. Yeah. So I'd be curious to talk to them um, about you know, where this sort of came from. And I, I was reading online, it, it was motivated by, I think their attendance was struggling and they needed to get students more involved. And this has just, you know, set off this chain reaction and people are loving it. Um, so I would, I would love to kind of pick their brains. It's kind of a fun thing. And maybe we can get Michael Phelps on too, to talk about his experience. I think it's a great idea. Actually, that, that curtain is an awesome idea. I, I do applaud them as as a marketer. I do appra- applaud them for trying to get students a little bit more part of the game. College sports should be fun for the students to be at and yeah. participatory. I, like you look at the Cameron Crazies, like it's a, it's an experience. Like I was at Bradley, we had a huge arena, but it was mostly like town people that just 
you know, came to the games and sucked. So I would have loved curtain of distraction. Let's do it. Yeah. So kind of a fun thing. All right. So my hammer guys this week is going to Mike uh, Senatore. I believe I'm pronouncing that correctly. Are you guys familiar with Mike? I'm not. No. What if I said bottle flip? Now are you familiar with Mike oh, Senatore? Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah Mike yeah. is a great American hero, okay? First things first, for those who haven't seen it, just Google bottle flip or kid breaks internet with water bottle. This guy, it's a, he's a senior at a high school, I believe in like North Carolina or something like that. It's a school talent show. He walks up with like very dramatic music. And on the stage, everyone's just watching him like, what's he doing? He's wearing like shorts and like a white t-shirt. He could not look less prepared to be out in public. And all he has in his hand is a water bottle. He walks up, the music stops, and dramatically he just like casually flips it up in the air and it lands perfectly straight up on a table. And the, uh, the auditorium just erupts as though he won the NBA finals <laughs> in front of them. That was the best part was to see how pumped up everyone got. It got posted online and it just like exploded I just, I love this side of sports. Like, that that bottle flip. First of all, the balls to, like, have the idea of, I'm going to go out there and do it. And then Gareth, the real reason I want to talk to him is because he pulled off what we talked about a few weeks ago, which is just all he did when it landed was just stand there, no celebration, and walk off stage like happens all the time, which I have to appreciate is amazing. We got to get Chris Jenkins. Can Chris Jenkins do the bottle flip? Chris Jenkins of Villanova. Can he do that uh, bottle flip? I'm into it. We got to pair these guys up, yeah. man. College visit, road trip to Philadelphia. We, <laughs> yes. Yes. we can be there by morning if Joe and I hop in the car right now, Gareth. Anyway, so those are our hammers. If you got someone you want to slam the hammer to, send us a tip, justnotsports at gmail.com. Find us on Twitter at justnotsports. Uh, up next, we've got two interviews coming up. Uh, we're going to start things off with. Scott Pollard, NBA, Kansas, first of all, Kansas Jayhawks legend, uh, NBA uh, longtime veteran, NBA analyst. He's going to break down his recent stint on Survivor. And then we are going to talk magic with John Dornbos. If you haven't heard John's story, it's super remarkable. This is a man who whose father murdered his mother, um, really found magic to be therapeutic along with football in terms of um uh, you know, rebounding from an, an enormously awful tragedy I can't even fathom. And he goes really into detail about the craft, but also about what he enjoys about performing. I, I, I would s- s- just tell everyone, if, even if you don't know anything about magic or uh, maybe aren't familiar with John, just uh, stick around. It's a great interview. So uh, we're going to take a break. We will be right back. on the show right now is Scott Pollard. Scott was a standout player at the University of Kansas and later an NBA champion with the Boston Celtics. But we're not here to talk about his long career in the NBA. We are here to talk about Scott's appearance on the most recent season of Survivor. A few athletes have appeared on Survivor over the years and we're interested to talk with them about strategy, survival, and whether a sports star can ever win arguably the most famous of all reality competitions. So, Scott, welcome to the show. The most important question first, would Jeff Probst, like, not even stand next to you on the beach for fear of, like, feeling that much shorter? (laughs) (laughs) 
I think that the, the challenges were rigged against me so that I wouldn't win individual immunity <laughs> so that he didn't have to climb a ladder to put the necklace on me. <laughs> no, but uh, he's a really nice guy, though. He, he when uh, you know Sometimes when there's dead time uh, and you're about to you know start a challenge or whatever, and he just he comes by and shoots the shit with you. He's a really nice guy. Um, you, you mentioned the game being rigged, and I know you're joking, but I've always felt that athletes are going to have a super hard time on Survivor because people associate them with, oh, hey, once they recognize you and call you out, it's like, you've got money, you've got notoriety, you're not going to need this as much as me. So what's your take on can athletes win the show? You obviously did very well on the season. Um, I think arguably the, the what the furthest of any athlete who's been on or sports figure who's been on the show. So did you ever think you could win or did you go into this thinking I'm the, I'm the longest of long shots here. I'm Rocky. And mm-hmm. I just want to see how far I can get. Well, a little bit of both. And, uh, to, to, uh, I just wanted to clear something up because, uh, they told me I was some of the producers on the way out. He's like, you were, you went as far, you went further than any other professional athlete ever. But it depends on how you quantify it, because right. there were people that made it further than me that were actually professional athletes at one point or another in other sports, but they weren't exactly advertised as professional athlete, you know, right. NBA player, Scott Pollard kind of thing. So it depends on how you quantify it. So I don't want to take anything away from other people that have been professional athletes that did make it further than eighth place. But um, of, of the of the people that I was that were advertised as one of the major, you know, pro sports athletes, uh, I they told me I did make it further than all of them. Exactly. But anyway, um, it was a little bit of both. It, it was part of me was going, you know, I think that I know people and, and I know that greed will take over in this game that is about lying and greed and, and, and outwitting people. Uh, so a, a little part of me is going, there's no way I'm ever going to get a chance because the greed's going to take over and I will never get people to vote to give me a million dollars. But the competitive side of any athlete kicks in and you're just sitting there going, you know what? I don't care what the odds are. Don't tell me the odds. I'm going to go do this anyway. I'm going to go win. I'm going to be the first one to prove everybody wrong that an athlete can win this thing. Is it rigged against athletes? No, it's not. It's, It's fair for everybody. But there is that added component for somebody that comes in with money because it's like, yeah, we saw it this season. There were players that were saying flat out to other players when I wasn't around, he doesn't need the money. Why, why keep him around? Right. Yeah. But as the game got closer to the end, and I don't know ahead, but as the, as the game got closer to the end, isn't that who you want sitting next? I was surprised that, that after a certain amount of time, after 26 days, I believe it was 26 or 27, when I got eliminated and I'm going, I got 11 days left. Why are you, why would you want me out of the game? No one's going to give me money. Right. Don't you want to sit next to the guy that no one's going to vote for? And, and when I got eliminated, that was really what was ringing through my mind more than anything else. I, it, I wasn't mad at Ty. I played my butt off. I played hard. I was happy with the way things uh, went uh, as far as I got uh, because, as I said, it was a little bit of both. I mean, you know what? I'm going to try to make it further than all the other pro athletes, knowing that there's probably no chance anybody's going to vote a, a millionaire another million dollars. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Scott, do you have... I'm curious to hear your perspective on like watching the show back. Um, has it given you any more insight into 
okay, I can see why they did X, Y, or Z that you had no idea of in the moment, especially voting you out. Um, cause I totally understand the logic. I, I, nobody wants me to win. You, you want me to sit next to you. Yeah. Uh, there, there were a lot of things that, that as you watch the, the playback, um, uh, cause if anybody is, is worried that we get to see it before America or the, or the viewing, viewing audience that they, we don't, we, yeah. we watched it just like everybody else. That's a fan of the show. So, we didn't know anything going into the season uh, of viewing it uh, other than what we lived. So knowing that, you know, you watch the edit and there are, everybody raises their eyebrows. We all talked to each other. It's like, yeah, at certain points you're like, Oh, huh. Thought for sure they would have shown this part. And everybody to a certain extent is a little bit selfish going, Oh man, when I did this, they should have shown it. Uh, but then yeah. there's other times where I was, I, especially with Michelle, I, like I feel really badly for Michelle because I, I really, as I'm watching the season going, I'm going, okay, when are they going to start showing how tough she was and how she started winning at the right time and, yes. and making it look like, that, you know, it, it, I feel bad for her because she's caught, caught a lot of uh, flack as, as not deserving it. And, and it was a landslide. I mean, Joe was going to vote Aubrey, even if she had not lived to be in the final tribal, he was going to vote Aubrey to write her name down. There was, there was no question about that. So really it was six six to one yeah. that, uh, that, that Michelle won. So it wasn't like, it wasn't bitter jury. It wasn't that it wasn't this. It, it was Michelle won when it counted. She got stronger as the game went on and everybody respected her game as, as it went down, but the audience didn't see that. So I can see how people watching it are going, Oh man, you guys must've voted cause you're bitter or blah, blah, blah. You didn't see this or that shoot. If I watched the season and didn't know anything else, if I just watched on TV, I probably would have voted Aubrey. <laughs> yeah. So I could see why America would be a little bit, uh, uh, you know, going, Hmm, I wonder why they voted Michelle because you don't get to see everything. We saw everything. We lived through it. And even as a jury member, when you're out of the game, you don't get to see everything anymore, but we saw the tribal councils in person. And, and then each person that voted out comes and tells us little things that, that happened after we were out. Absolutely. So we, we heard more and more. And, and that, uh, that affects your, you as well. So, um, yeah, there we are. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's good. I, I wonder, you speak of, like, you hear this term thrown around a lot online, you know, the winner's edit. You know, sometimes it you're saying to Michelle she didn't get her, you know, mm-hmm. her comeuppance, and people maybe were a little bit surprised, the audience. Do you have any thoughts on how you were represented? I, I know you mentioned, I wish they would have shown this, or, man, that's out of context. As a viewer of the show, I'm a fan of the show. Um, my girlfriend and I watching every week. I think, I think it's maybe safe to say you got a little bit of like the villains edit. You and Jason um, hiding the machete, like. But then you sort of switch a little bit, and I wonder what your thoughts are on like. You yes, it's television. It's got to be edited, but boy, that was not fair. <laughs> Uh, I would never say that. I know what I signed up for. Yeah. I, I, the, the edit is the edit. Um, I did everything that they showed me doing. So how could I sit there and say, oh, it's just the edit. I did all those things. I said all those things. But I would hope that the discerning fan watch it over again and see what things I actually said. Yeah. And things I actually did. I think some words got put in my mouth that I didn't say. For example... I believe I referred to Alicia as Blondie once 
And it was when Jason said, well, we know what we're doing tonight. It's Blondie, right? And I oh, said, yeah, just, Blondie. It takes off, yeah. And I don't think there was another time. I, I watched it over again. I don't think there was one other time that I called her anything but Alicia. Yeah. To her face or to a testimonial. Now, I'm not backtracking at all. I'm just saying there were some things that were said, some insults that were thrown around that I didn't say. And I'm not trying to throw anybody else under the bus either. But that happened. Then if you want to go further in the game, I got called a lot of names behind my oh, back. Yeah. And Jason got called a lot of names behind his back. Things that were bleeped out. And if you go back and watch, nothing I said got bleeped out. Nobody walked away and I went, man, F them or F this. No curse words, no insults, no name calling. And I'm the villain. So, I would ask for the people that, that think, oh, man, this guy's just a big old jerk. Maybe go back and look again and see exactly what I did say and what I did do beyond hiding the machete. That was my idea. Yeah. Hiding the axes, you know, pouring the water on the fire. Clearly, I did those things. So I'm not backtracking at all, not once. I'm, I'm happy with the way I played the game. Am I 100% happy with the edit? Yep. Because I know what I signed up for. I don't have any sour grapes. I don't have any bitterness about it. I signed up for a reality TV show. Yeah, <laughs> if you it. think you're going to sign up for a reality TV show and you're going to have control of how you look on a reality TV show, you're crazy. <laughs> right. You're insane. <laughs> right. You are giving up all self-respect. You're giving up all control over how you are portrayed to the audience. I got the villain edit. Fine. That's okay. I know who I am in my real life. I know who my kids are. Uh, they know who I am. My wife knows who I am. And I, I kind of felt bad for my friends because my friends are going, hey, what are they going to show you sing, singing and dancing and telling jokes? <laughs> I was like, I don't know. Looks like I'm not going to get that edit. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, but, but I was talking to one of my oldest friends, and he's actually kind of probably responsible for me getting on the show because he's really good friends with somebody that knows some people that do things at, at CBS. And he was just like, man, I am so sorry. Because we kept waiting for, to see you telling jokes and being you. And they didn't show that. They just showed you, like, in the jury, you're mean the whole time. You never smile. And even Debbie said it in the finale, the live finale. Debbie was like, yeah, Scott's over here in the jury cracking jokes and smiling 95% of the time. Mm -hmm. But as you watch the jury, I'm sitting there stone-faced, looking like I'm mean-mugging <laughs> the entire time. And everybody's just going, who's that guy? Because none of my friends know that guy. They don't know mean, surly Scott. They yeah. know jokester Scott. So that's proof positive that they have a lot of footage. And oh, they can yeah. make people look a certain way. And it's easy to paint the big, giant, tattooed guy and the bearded, tattooed bounty hunter as villains more than it is painting beautiful Julia, beautiful Michelle, brainy Aubrey, or FBI agent Joe as a villain. Kind of easy, easy to do that, especially once you once people start getting voted out. It's like, all right, well, these guys are the ones that are making the booze and, and pissing people off because they're playing tough, they're playing hard. We're the only ones with families to provide for. Everybody else is living off something else, whether it's Social Security or their parents. Jason and I have wives and kids we're providing for, so we played our butts off. And probably neither one of us has regrets about how we played. We knew what we signed up for. We played our butts off. Didn't work out next absolutely scott to your point it's interesting watching like the ponderosa videos how you have this edit in the show and then you leave and when you watch the videos online everyone at ponderosa is now like man 
like they're just talking about how funny you are and how like how <laughs> laid back you are. And I had the exact same thought. I'm like, I don't remember seeing that on the episode and you're just having a good time. It's just interesting how. Right. All right. Once he's out of the show. All right. Here he is. I, I just found that fascinating. But Scott, I follow up on that. When you're in the moment, I think everyone can relate to this. If, if I just dropped everyone on a work trip or something for a week, by the end of that week, every little thing in that dynamic with you and your colleagues and everything is going to feel like the way that the world is on every word and, and it tempers flare and stuff like that. You've got people literally starving, dealing with all sorts of issues in the middle of nowhere for weeks on end with a million dollars at stake. Of course, tempers are going to flare. Of course, people are going to take it super serious. Of course, decisions are going to be either ruthless or bad or whatever. Can you just talk about the mindset of an individual in this experience? Because you're not a straight, you're not somebody they plucked off the street who doesn't know how to deal with stress. You've been on the largest stages in sports. What what was it like to be in this environment knowing how because crazy emotional and competitive and physical it was? Well, and I, to, to answer that, Jason's been in the desert in, our, in Afghanistan for right, right, long, right. long, 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 long periods of time. I've done horrible things to my body to be a professional athlete over my entire life. So both of us has dealt, uh, have dealt with physical stress different ways. I'm not comparing myself of course, yeah. to war by any means. But, you know, in his way and in my way, we have both stressed our bodies to the limit and beyond and come back. And so when you're, when you're dealing with heat or you're dealing with the, the stresses that normal people or not, I don't mean to say that we're not normal people. I just mean people that haven't dealt with those types of stressors on their body. And then we're done after we're done with say this challenge where people were falling down or whatever it is. And we're, we're finally get some water and we're back joking about it, and laughing around. Of course, they're not going to show that. Yeah. You can't because it didn't fit the theme of the toughest season in survivor history because you got two guys that are going out there doing it, struggling just like everybody else. But then when we're done struggling, it's like, eh, man, that sucks. <laughs> yeah. Hey, remember this time when, oh man, I did this and then that, blah, blah. And then Jason would tell me a war story and we're laughing and yucking it up. And other people are sitting in the shade going, oh my gosh, I, I almost died. And, and we're kind of laughing about it. So there, there were, Definitely times where you're just going, wow, I guess, yeah, I've lived through some things that most people haven't, and you're able to bounce back. For example, the one where Caleb got evacuated, tough guy, you know, obviously right. in very good shape, but zero body fat. Maybe that's why he went down. Guess who else went down? Zero body fat, Sydney. Yeah. But he happened to be in maybe better shape, maybe a little bit better hydrated. She bounced back. And she was able to stay, but she was in convulsions. That girl was struggling just like Caleb was just a little bit less. And she made it through. Maybe if she had been, you know, a little gone a little bit harder and, not, and maybe she backed off during the challenge. Cause I did, I know I, I had a, a tough time after the first challenge, the very first challenge, the first day I went to medical and I almost got pulled in the game. Uh, so it, it was, it was extreme, but then it's how you bounce back. And, and that's where, Again, it, it goes back to what they're going to show. Is it keeping with the themes, or is it, ah, oh, man, we can't really show them laughing this off because yeah. it doesn't keep with the theme of this. This And it really was tough. I'm not trying to take anything away from anybody that's, that really struggled. I had infections, too. I almost got pulled for a cut on my finger. 
I almost got pulled, like I said, after the very first challenge because I overdid it. My heart started racing and I fell out and passed out and almost went into heat exhaustion. But I, I bounced back. They gave me some water and I bounced back. So, um, you know, it's, it's different for everybody, but uh, it's how you deal with it. And I think that people that have been through really, really trying times, whether it's being at war like Jason or being a professional athlete where your body gives out on you many, many times and you just go, well, I'm going to run one more lap and then I'll stop. Yeah. You know, that's that extra reserve that some people have that other people don't. On the topic of sort of bouncing back, I think you've been very forthright in your, your interviews and everything you've said after the game of sort of respecting the way certain people have played the game. Like you've talked about, I kind of want to ask you about the blind side. Like you can understand and you talked about, right. I, I love Ty. I still love Ty. Everybody loves Ty. But like bouncing back from that and understanding it was Strategy. a move. It yeah. was a move in a game. It was a strategical move. But what is it like? I just can't. I'm watching it, I got sick to my stomach. And I'm not <laughs> kidding. It was like, right. it was hard to watch. And I'm wondering, how do you prepare yourself going to tribal pretty much every time knowing it could be me? Um, how, how do you mentally get in that state? you maybe you're feeling comfortable this time and then it just comes out of nowhere. Like what is, yeah. what is that roller coaster like? Well, I, I had practice. I went to every single tribal council this season, except for the one Liz was voted out. So, um, I, I had some experience dealing with that stress of going into tribal. Maybe it's me, maybe it's me more than anybody else in the game. Yeah. Until I was voted out anyway. Um, but, but no one else went to every tribal except for one uh, on this season. So, it was something that, that I got an early start to the game. I, I've, I really had, to, you know, and I learned on the fly. You can watch it all you want, but until you're there, you're not really an expert. You can know how things happened in the past, but you really have to watch this game and be in this game uh, to, to, to know what's going on. And I, I had a crash course because I, I had so many times there. I walked into the tribal council. I was like, Norm, you know, I sit in my favorite stool. And, you know, I'd order a beer. They never brought one. <laughs> they never brought me a beer, but I kept ordering them. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it was something that, that I got used to of uh, that stress and, and watching and seeing what was happening. And I did not see this coming. So I'm not going to say that for one second. But as soon as I looked over at Ty, I knew he was going to do what he was going to yeah. do. Because he would have had it out. I know Ty, and I do like Ty. Uh, but I know Ty, and as soon as I looked over, I knew, oh, my gosh, no way. He's not going to do it. And it, I, I think that some people are still confused. They're like, well, if he had given you his idol, he would have tied Aubrey and maybe he goes home. But he also voted me. Yeah. If he had stuck with the plan and voted Aubrey, then he could have given me my idol, his idol, and then he would not have tied Aubrey and Aubrey would have gone home. Well, that makes this game a little different, doesn't it? Yeah. And, and what did it, it feel like? We talked about earlier. Go ahead. Oh, sorry. No, I just want to know, like, uh, before we go too far into the strategy, which we'll get more to, what if what, the moment you look over and you see he's not going to, like, he's going to go this way, I'm, I'm done. What did that feel like? Because I think we've all watched the blind sides over the years and been like, oh, like, like a gut punch. But like, is it, is it, I, I don't know. I don't want to, I don't want to even say any words. I just wonder, like, what was the reaction from you emotionally? Well, you know, it's, it's that, it's that bad feeling. I don't know if you've ever been in a relationship where either you were, unfaithful or your partner was, but I have, I've been on both sides of that and it's an awful feeling and right. I don't do that anymore because it's an awful feeling, <laughs> right. but you know, 
it's it's a similar feeling to that. It's that your heart kind of sinks and you just go, ah, oh, I, I, I thought what we had was good, baby. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Hi, <laughs> my man. I saved your idol. You were going to play it the first night I met you, and I talked to you out of it. You only have that idol. And I started going into scorned man syndrome, you know, like, oh, you're the reason you have it in my head, of course. Yeah. Uh, I'm not saying this out loud, but in my head, you know, that's the feeling is, you don't have that aisle if it's not for me. You're not even sitting here if it's not for me. I saved you and we sent Anna packing. That's because of me. I could have made your butt go home. But, you know, he made a move. After the, you know, as soon as it's over, it's like, all right, well, there's no use reliving it and, and having regrets. I played hard. He made a move that he thought was good. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I, what I was going to say is it, it goes back to what we were saying earlier. Like, you want to be sitting next to the people that nobody's going to give money to. And I thought for sure Ty understood that no one was going to give me any money. So yeah. why would you get rid of me? I mean, if he wanted to get yeah. after Jason and Jason won immunity that day, okay, maybe go with Aubrey. Aubrey was going to get money, uh, potentially. And so, you, you, you know, get votes. So, you, you, again, it just didn't, it didn't ring for me at the time and never will. Uh, because I've watched it over and over again, and, and no one respected his strategic game, and that's why he didn't get any votes. Everybody loves Ty. Everybody loved he was a provider, and he was great to be around camp. But, you know, strategically, he kind of fell off the boat there at the end and, and mm-hmm. just didn't make a lot of moves that made sense and didn't have a lot of jury respect because of that. First of all, I love the image of you breaking down game film on your blind side. <laughs> like you said, watching <laughs> it over and over again. That's amazing. Second, I've always had some questions about tribal council. Number one, how long is the hike to it? Because my theory was always they want you to get a little worn out. So when you get there, you're just that much more primed and ready to give like kind of raw emotion. Yeah, you're on edge a little bit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, they don't like you talking about this stuff. Let me, let me just say, you do, it's a different island. Okay. All right. Okay. Fair. Okay. We'll leave it at that. America <laughs> can piece it all it, together. Uh, and I will say one more thing from the time we walk out of camp to the time we sit down, you can tell we walked out of camp and then sun's out and then we get to tribal and it's pitch black. Yep. yep. That's at least an hour and a half, two hours, right? Yep. So without going into detail, a lot of time passes and you, you're on the right track. Maybe that maybe that, that, that is purposeful to get people on edge, but it, it's definitely, uh, it's a long time passes when you leave camp to when you sit down with Jeff at Tribal. So no matter what, you're going to kind of be on edge because it's not like you're sitting there eating and getting a rub down and, and a coffee while you're while you're waiting. Yeah, right. And we've all worked in production, so we know. I- I'm guessing Tribal is a very long night too. Like Jeff, sure on the cut, Jeff's asking like four or five questions, but I'm sure that you guys are talking about gameplay with him for a long time. You have to sit there while everyone goes up writes their name, maybe they have to do it again to get a different angle or something. Like, Is it a fast process like you see on TV, or is it very drawn out? And if you can't talk about it, just let us know. It's fine. We can move on. Tri- Tribal is way longer than... It's always seven minutes on the show, yeah, but right. it's way longer than that in real life. It's, it's more like two hours. Jeez. Man. Well, Scott, you mentioned... Uh, this is something I'd never thought of until you mentioned it right now, of going in... and you're, I, I looked at this earlier today. You were on everyone except for one tribal council. And so you, you're right. You've had this practice. If you're going in for the first time in week or, you know, tribal number five, all you have to go off of is what you've seen on TV. All you've seen is those seven minute clips and you're sitting there and you've had 
you know, now 10 hours of tribal council under your belt. It's got to be such a different experience. I guess I, I just wanted to come back to that. I just never have thought of that before. Yeah, it's, it truly is. A, it's a, it's a trial by fire process and you can either look at it like Michelle got a free pass because she didn't have to go to tribal council till day 22, but neither did Nick and Nick went home that day. Yeah. His first tribal was his last, you know, except for jury. So it was, it, it's, you could say, well, she got a, a, a pass to, to not have to join the game. Or you could look at it that, hey, we all play with our circumstances. I didn't want to be a tribal every time, but having that experience, I think, helped me get further. It helped me understand, okay, if this starts going this way, tribal, we've got to figure out a way to steer it back another direction to get it away from me. People are starting to look at me and talk to me too much. Yeah, I need out of this. And you try to poke, poke a hole in somebody else's story and let them unravel. Uh, so it, 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 it was, I took it as an advantage. It was adversity that I turned into an advantage. I didn't ask to be a tribal every time, but I was, and I learned and I listened and I, I tried to get better and better every time I went uh, until it turned out that there was no, nothing I could do about it. Yeah. It, it was just done for me. It was a complete blind side and, and I was out. Um, another question I have for you here. This is something I found interesting in some of the interviews you did after the show and especially in your Ponderosa video, it was like the scene in Castaway when he's finally rescued and he like, you know, goes over and picks up a lighter and he can make fire in like one second. It was you like just at the amazement of like, hey, I don't have to poop in the ocean anymore. And, um, you know, I haven't closed a door in 30 days. Like, what is that? And then the other really poignant thing you mentioned was the the disconnection from technology. Like, I don't think any of us have oh, any God. idea what it's like to be oh, even away from your phone for a day, let alone weeks. So what is that reintroduction like um, to you? You were just starving and now you're being handed a double decker cheeseburger and a beer. What is that reintroduction <laughs> into real life? Like, I just can't imagine that. Well, physically my feet swell up, my ankles, my lower legs swell up with no sodium, basically, right. is what the doctor told me. It's a very normal thing when you're malnutrition and then you get it. You get food back in your system. There's a lot of sodium in what we consume, especially when I was sitting over there eating all the Cambodian food I could get my, my hands on because I love spicy food. Uh, so my feet swell up. And um, that, so physically, you know, I, I almost you don't feel great for a couple of days until your body starts getting acclimated to, to having food again. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, you know, I, I, the, the mental part of it, like you mentioned, the closing a door. Now we weren't actually in a hotel. We were still on the beach in some bungalows. You see the, the pictures of Fonda Rosa in a video, you see the cutaways, uh, which were wonderful. I and mean, I'm not knocking them at all, but it still was that wasn't exactly civilization. It's yeah. not like we were indoors air conditioned with roofs over our head and, and windows. There was no windows still. The bungalows had just like, you know, wooden flats, you know, keeping the walls up and you could see through the floor and there was no air conditioning and, and wonderful, excellent vacation for the last 11 days, my 11 days on the island. But, but still, you know, not exactly like being home home. But uh, the technology part, you know, they take your phone away and then they give you the boarding pass in L.A. And you don't get it back until you land in LA. Oh, geez. So, yeah. and, and you can't like, if somebody's, if somebody on the cruise wearing a watch, they won't even let you look at their watch. You can't look at their phone. You can't look at their watch. And, uh, once, even once you're back at Ponderosa, 
you know, there's books, there's, uh, a, a, there was a TV room in one of the bungalows. We could go in and watch movies, but we couldn't watch television. They like wouldn't let us keep up with current just events. old VHSs and no. stuff. <laughs> Uh, well, they, they, they had some like, you know, there's, there's bootleg movies in that part of the world. You can gotcha. get bootleg movies for a dollar. So it was like movies that were in theaters. Uh, and they did let us watch survivor that was going on the, the, the season that was playing world apart was playing. And so they let us catch up on what was going on on the, the actual survivor, but we couldn't watch the commercial. There were no commercials, but they, they like, we couldn't watch television cause they didn't like, we didn't know who won the NCAA. We didn't know who was in the NBA playoffs. Oh man. Um, <laughs> You know, that kind of thing. And, and I wasn't dying for that stuff. And that's to finish off this question or the answer to your question, the technology, it, it, was a, it was a wonderful thing. And it was a wonderful break. And it was so relaxing. And it was so great to just get up, have a little coffee, go for a swim, go for a walk, you know, play some cards and, and just hang out. Once, in a, one, once or twice, we went to the mainland. Uh, the jury did and, and walked around out there still being watched so that we couldn't check technology, but, um, it was wonderful. But when you get back to reality, you realize how much you need it. I'm a, I'm a father of four kids now. And if I don't have a phone, I don't talk to my kids every day right? because my first three live at their mom's half the time and those at mine half the time. They switch every week. So there's a week that I don't go, I don't get to see my kids every single day. And so I have to call them every single day. So I can't just like toss my phone uh, for weeks at a time or I don't talk to my kids and I, I, there's nothing I won't do for my children. I'll even go on a reality TV show and embarrass myself in front of the whole country yeah. for my kids. <laughs> so that's, that, that getting, getting away from the technology was wonderful, but getting back to it, is a necessity in, in this day and age, and as needy as I am to be a, a father and, and be in constant contact with my children and know what they're up to and, and know what's going on in their lives, I, I can't stay away from it. I wish I could. I wish I could just say, hey, you know what, kids, I'll see you in a week, but I just, I'm not that guy. Yeah. I, can't, I can't separate as much as I loved it, as much as I wish I could. I just can't make that disconnect anymore. But I'm working on it. You know, I try to stay off of social media here and there, just go, you know what, I'm not doing it. And especially now that the season's over, it's going to be a lot easier to take some breaks because I don't have to respond to fans and and uh, this and that, you know? Absolutely. Um, last question for you here. I'm just curious. You know, we've we covered some good stuff about this season, how you got involved originally. Looking forward, there's always – the possibility of a return to the island. All stars. Yeah, all villain, stars. Villains heroes, versus, heroes versus villains. Guys, yeah. Like, what? Um, what are your thoughts? Would you be open to it? And how do you think your strategy might change depending oh, yeah. on maybe you're cast as a villain for the show? Maybe you're on an all stars episode. Like, what? Um, how do you think your game would change if you wanted to come back? Uh, well, let me let me first say I would. I'm not holding my breath. Okay. But if 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 the call were made, uh, I would absolutely consider going back to the island, and that surprised some people. Even even some people in production, they were like, "Really, you do this again?" I was like, "Yeah, you know." Uh, even with my baby uh, boy, that's that's even he, the only reason he exists is because of that separation we just discussed. Uh, I got home and things cleared <laughs> up. I I called my wife and I said, we're having a baby. And she said, I had a dream that you said this. And I've got, a, I've got her journal while I was gone. She kept a journal of what was going on with my kids. Uh, Cause she was taking care of them during my parenting time while I was gone. 
And, uh, you know, she was take, keeping a journal and halfway through while I was gone, she wrote me a journal. I had a dream that you called me and said, we're having a kid and wow. she wanted one too. And, and it worked out. So baby number four is survivor baby. But, um, <laughs> you know, the, uh, my strategy, if I were to be back out there, I, my strategy going into this one was find an alpha male and an alpha female and make them feel like they're in control of everything and let them take all the hits and be the one that everybody's putting a target on and make it seem like I'm just along for the ride. I don't know if people actually gathered that that's what I was doing yeah. until towards the end of the game. And apparently, you know, as again, as we discussed earlier, I must've been some kind of threat because otherwise, why would you get me out of the game? You, you want a guy that no one's going to vote for next to you. So it must have be that, that people started thinking, man, people like him, the jury likes him, he's got to go. Otherwise, why would you keep, why would you get rid of me? And then uh, that became evident again when Michelle was deciding who she would think, you know, Aubrey was, and Ty and her were discussing who they would get out of the jury. And Michelle only thought about Neil or me. And so that goes back. I took that as a compliment because I'm sitting there going, okay, well, Neil's clearly a brain. Scott's clearly a, a brawn. And she was thinking, man, who it's, it's one of those two. Again, that goes back to respect. I took that as a compliment because you're, I would even Jason, and I were thinking it was going to be Jason. Yeah. The but that was me being self-deprecating going, Hey, uh, I wanted to make sure whoever I was with and, and Jenny was my female alpha. And I really think that we could have gotten the final three. I think the three of us could have gone final three, but I lost that battle. I let Jason feel like he was in control, made all the decisions. He wanted Sydney. He kept Sydney. I didn't fight him. I just said, Hey, we got, you got the votes because Alicia's voting Jenny. I'm not going to write Jenny's name down, but Hey, I can't beat you. All right, fine. I'm with you. I'm just not going to write down, you know, uh, Jenny's name. So I let Jason feel like he was in control. He was in control. And he played a great game. I'm not trying to take anything away from him because he, he is a very, very good player. Uh, but if I were to go back, would I be able to play that same way? I don't know. It depends on if people sniff that out because I don't want to come off as too smart. I don't want to come off as, as arrogant again. I guess I came off as arrogant this time. But uh, I would be watching my circumstances, watching who I'm with, the theme of the show. If it's heroes, villains, okay, yeah, then that, that's, that helps me play one way. Yeah. If, because I'd probably get cast as a villain. But if it's all-stars and, you know, who knows? Who knows who I'm playing? Maybe it's all-athletes. They go, hey, you know what? Let's do something crazy and do all-athletes. We are well, in. Oh, yeah, that would be awesome. Are you kidding? That'd be so it was, cool. If it was all-athletes, you would see arrogance to a, a, an extreme level that oh. you've never even heard of before. <laughs> Because people have no idea how arrogant people are in that locker room in the NBA. Oh, yeah. And I'm assuming all other professional sports. You would see arrogance to an extreme degree that I don't even know if they'd want to show it on TV. Maybe that's why they haven't done an all-athlete season. <laughs> because we are arrogant people. You have to be strong in your self-esteem department or you're not going to be a professional athlete for very long if you even make it that far. Man, well, Scott, we could talk all night. We, we, you, we've, you've taken up, uh, we, or excuse me, we've taken up a ton of your time. I just want to thank you so much for kind of talking strategy, for talking about the experience. It Survivor remains the gold standard of reality competitions. I, I think, unlike a lot of the other shows, to go on the show is a is a physical experience. I mean, you lost what, like almost fifty pounds. Like, it just it's an amazing experience, yeah. and we we applaud you for going as far as you did. And uh, 
Uh, man, I, if there's an all-star season, dude, I want you to come come back and I want you to beat the hell out of Boston Rob. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. That'd be a tall order, but, you know, I would do my best. We'll see. Absolutely. All right. Well, thanks, man. We really appreciate the time. Scott, thanks so much. Thanks for having me on, guys. Joining us on the show right now is John Dorenboss. John is one of the most remarkable people in the NFL. His childhood was derailed by a terrible tragedy when he was young, which we'll get into a little bit later. But in the years since, John has rebounded to become not only just a standout player, but a super active member of the community. He's a two-time pro bowler who currently serves as the long snapper for the Philadelphia Eagles. So he's good with his hands snapping the football, but he's even better with a deck of cards. John is an accomplished magician. So today we're going to break down the art of a good magic trick and decide whether magic is making a comeback in popular culture. So John, I, where I want to start is um, what's your best trick and why do you think that is? You know, it's funny. I, I love magic. I love everything about it. I've been into it since I was a little kid. And my favorite trick, honestly, is any trick that the audience likes and wherever the performance goes, I've always said that I'll, I'll bail on a trick in a heartbeat to get a laugh. And for me, the magic is a tool to have a, a moment with an audience, create a relationship with an audience, create an experience for an audience. I love the energy side of it. Uh, you know, who doesn't want to be a rock star? So uh, <laughs> I'm not, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm not a rock star at all. So uh, magic is my tool. And, and um, I, I love card stuff. You know, uh, I, I got, I call it the JDE, whatever it's called, the John Dorbach experience. And I, I look out and do close-up shows for no more than ten people, and I love it. Uh, it's it's where I have the most fun performing. Obviously, the stage stuff is great, and I totally dig it. But there's something about kind of just going live and improving and and kind of having hecklers at a, at a close-up table, or even people just laughing. And uh, that's the energy I love. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because my favorite style of magic is the really kind of up close. Uh, I guess, you know, whether you said like at a table or on the street, um, I think there's an intimate inter- interplay between the magician and the audience. And, and the tricks become almost as much about the connection between performer and audience as it is the illusion itself. Can you talk a little bit about about the dynamic between you and the audience when you're performing and how you get the most out of that? Yeah, you know, uh, I've, I've done a lot of interviews about this, and I want to compliment you on probably one of the coolest questions I've ever been asked. And that's <laughs> well, the thank first you. Time, that's the first time in, in 14 years I've been asked that question, which is cool. And, uh, you know, growing up as a fan of the art, you have different styles of performers. You have people that are very structured. Uh, they have their set pattern, and they have their set moments where there's an applause cue. They have their written comedy, and, and that's good. I, I love it. I'm a fan of it. Um, and there's a lot of great magicians that, that are like that. Um, my style is when I got into magic and, and at the time of my life that I did, I spent a couple years learning moves. It wasn't so much tricks where, you know, a trick has a plot. It goes from mm-hmm. A, B to C, and there's a beginning, a middle, and an end to every trick. Um, I learned more moves that would get me in and out of situations. And so it's something that, because I, I, I don't have ADD, but I, I knew that my attention span, I was either going to forget, or I was definitely going to screw up half my tricks. So I needed to get <laughs> in and, yeah, I needed to learn moves that would get me in and out of situations. So for instance, I missed your card. 
So instead of learning a trick, I said, I want to learn how to find a card really, really fast and get it to the top of the deck. So I learned that, so that if I miss a card, in the one offbeat that the audience looks up and laughs, I can go through, find a card, and get it to the top within a second or two. And then I was like, I want to learn how to either get this card in my shoe or their shoe or in purse or a pocket, because then if a trick goes bad, I can now find the card and do what's called put-pocketing, which means you put stuff on people. And then I can say, well, no wonder the trick didn't work. Sir, look, look inside your pocket. And there's in his card signed in, in the guy's pocket. So that enabled me to now all of a sudden, well, John, how many tricks do you know? Well, I don't know, because a lot of tricks happen in the moment where wherever a card appears, I guess technically that's a new trick, but you're making it up as you go. It reminds me of when Johnny Carson was better when a joke bombed because it allowed him to to, yes. to improv. And I'm wondering, I've never heard of a magician talking about a trick not working and how to get out of it. I'm fascinated by this. So how many moves then, yeah, how, how many moves do you have like for this to, to get out of situations? Uh, 723,604. <laughs> that's a move right there. You, that's not a real number. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. You know what? I don't really know. I mean, um, but yeah, I, I think that dynamic's really funny, and I, I think that dynamic also brings an interesting part of the show, that one, no two shows are going to be the same. And I think that uh, it kind of, you know, do I mess up a lot? No. But does it happen? Yes. But now what happened is, is I, I kind of hone-tuned my craft, and I, I really kind of focused in on these tricks. The margin of error is less, but now I've got I've got this, toolbox of moves and so now i can create tricks as i go where they used to be out and they used to get me out of situations where now i can now go to a trick and enforce the situation and make that a trick if that makes sense so now if i wanted to um instead of missing the guy's card well now i know i can put it on him somewhere so now that becomes a trick and so my mistakes have now led to really my style and what's differentiated me in the magic world, because really I was just a kid trying to get out of missing card tricks all the time, and I had to figure out a way to get out of it and still make it cool. Right. If that makes sense. Oh, it does. Now, you mentioned you have one beat to make this decision. So I'm wondering, like, in your head, how quickly are you deciphering what your next move is going to be and recalibrating? I mean, it's almost like a quarterback audibling. Uh, when he reads the defense only without the luxury of five seconds on the clock to uh, make a, you know, snap the ball. Uh, you know what? It, it's funny because uh, I've been offered a lecture on, on this topic to magicians and I, and I really had a hard time. For me, it, it came very naturally. And uh, I think for everyone, when they get into music, maybe, uh, maybe you learn from just sound and you hear a note, you just know what it is and you don't really know how to explain it. You just know. So for me, when I got into performance, I found that my strength was realizing these beats, and most beats happen in threes, and, and I had a natural knack for misdirection, and I had a natural knack for using my uh, my personality and, and the way I talk with people and the way I act. It just flowed naturally for me to be able to talk and lean and create misdirection for me to do moves. And so it's hard to kind of pinpoint that, but... I would say that, that that's my strength is just recognizing beats and controlling those beats to happen when I need them to happen. So in, in that respect, do you consider your, your art in, like completely improvisational or do you consider yourself much closer to an Im- improviser than you do a traditional, like, you know, by the script performer? 
I, I think it's a mixture of both. Right. And, uh, it's part of my performance that I'm, I'm really proud of. If you were to kind of reflect on, you know, uh, me as a performer, yeah, I, I would say that um, you go in structured, you go in with somewhat of a structure. You know, for instance, uh, you know, I, I think my, in the close-up side that I've had, and I think the, the, success, the success that I've had with it is that, um, let's make this simple, magician has you pick out a card. You put, uh, the magician takes the card and the magician puts it back in the deck, and somehow the magician finds a way to shuffle it back to the top. Okay? Yep. Um, it's a little different for me because, one, I can have you pick one, you put it in, and you shuffle it. And I'm going to watch you and estimate within five cards where it's at after you shuffle. And then I'll be able to cut to those five. And then eventually I'll have you tell me your card without really realizing it, and then I can shuffle through those five and know where it's at, and then I'm going to go from there. Um, if I were to take a card and put it at 14, I'd riffle down with my thumb, and if it looks like I'm randomly putting a card in the deck, I can count with my thumb very quickly. So if I know the aces are at 14, 21, 32, and say 40, I can go through it within seconds, get them together, and then literally riffle shuffle to myself in poker while talking to you and, and having a conversation. So you're really thinking on multiple levels. You're one, controlling four different cards. You're shuffling. I'm holding a conversation with you. But then I'm also trying to figure out where I want to go with this trick and what I want to do. So if you know the exact number location of where the cards are and you can legitimately riffle off the thumb or count or cut to that exact number, now I can either find them, shoot them out one by one. Uh, I can palm them out and maybe put them in different spots of the room without you knowing and then they appear different places. It just allows me so much more versatility and, and improv in the moment to go where the trick wants me to go and, and to do what the audience says. Here's the coolest thing ever. When a guy looks at you or a woman looks at you and says, there's no way you can get that card inside of my beer. Okay, that's my goal. Because that was not a forced trick. <laughs> that is real magic when right. you do what they tell you to do. And I think the great performers, they fish that out of people without them even really realizing it. And now the performer's just giving them what they want to see. What's That's the, cool. What's the best example of that? That you could, Was there a time that you were just in the zone and someone challenged you and you're just like, Nailed it, you know, just gotcha. Wow. Um, I'll tell you one of the cool examples that I witnessed. It, it wasn't me, and I wish I could take credit for this story. But a buddy of mine had a woman pick a card out, and they didn't have a Sharpie for her to, uh, to sign it. So instead, she had this just really thick lipstick. So he's like, whatever, just kiss the card. So she kisses the card, and it now makes the imprint of a lip. And it was a two of spades. So there's a two of spades. You know, if a girl kisses something in her yeah. lipstick, leaves the imprint. Okay. So now he's doing the trick the whole time, and boom, the lipstick's on it. Well, he didn't realize that he, he had another two of spades in the deck. So as he was going through looking for the one with the lipstick, he accidentally shot out a blank two of spades. So he shoots it out. Well, the lipstick now disappeared. Now, the audience doesn't know he has two two of spades. In fact, the magician didn't even know he had two two of spades. <laughs> so, so she looked at him. And said, if you can get that lipstick to reappear back on that too, uh, that's going to be the greatest trick ever. So sure enough, he found the other one, made him change, and it looked like the lipstick just appeared on the two. And the way he did it is he held it up and he says, well, I tell you what, why don't you just blow this to a kiss? And so she kind of blew it a kiss. And then, sure, and then he turned the card over and boom, it had the lipstick on it. And it was the greatest trick ever. But that trick is cool. But it's way cooler when it's motivated by the audience, and it happens organically. Like, you can recreate that. Yeah, okay, cool. Kiss the card. All right, cool. Oh, boom, there's a two. Oh, the lipstick there. Hey, blow it a kiss. Boom, you did it. Here's your, here's your kiss. 
But when she says, if you can make my lips reappear on that card, amazing. We'll blow it a kiss. Boom. So the dynamic is completely different. The moment's completely different. And a magician just did what a magician does. He solves a problem using magic. And it all happened organically. It was so cool, man. So you mentioned each trick has a plot. Now, I don't want you to give away trade secrets. I'm not the master magician here. But I, I am curious, what components of that plot do you need for the trick to work? Here's the thing. Um, and I can probably speak for a lot of magicians. We know a lot more tricks than we perform. And what happens is, is you learn a move and you learn a trick, and then it doesn't really fit you as a performer. It doesn't really fit your personality. So you just kind of bag it. So really, the ideal plot for a trick is really whatever trick complements the performer and his personality and his style, if that makes sense. And so, you know, now there's tricks that I, I perform that I, I don't really normally do, but it's, it kind of fits the crowd, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah. Um, so uh, I think that's the best I can answer that. What about those big crowds? How do you have to adapt your style when you're in a big room? Because you, you lose the intimacy. You might lose some of the interplay with the individual, but you have to command the attention of the collective group. How do you, how do, you do that? Well, if you're doing stand-up material, it's a lot different than if you're doing close-up. You know, so if you're in a, if you're in a theater, if you're at a corporate gig, then you, you pretty much have your show laid out and it's more theater. It's more structured. Um, but to be loosely structured in a close-up setting where people can yell at you, <laughs> you know, it, it, hecklers don't really happen. You know, uh, if you control a room and you control an audience and you have their attention, hecklers don't happen. So, um, in, in a close-up room when there's only 10 people, it's hard to avoid conversation because it's not structured like that. Right. So, you know, when you're on stage, it's a whole different ballgame. How often, how much do you have to practice? How much work do you have to put in to retain the skill level that you've got? Uh, because I imagine these are incredibly complicated moves, incredibly complicated skills. Uh, you're a professional athlete. You know that hard work is demanded to retain a certain level of excellence. So how often do you have to be on, you know, you know like really working, working tricks, working moves, and practicing? Um, I don't want to say it's like riding a bike, but it's just... You know, I've been doing it for 25 years now, so my the dexterity in the fingers is there, the coordination is there. It's kind of like a musician. Once you learn C, D, and G on a guitar, once you get that general coordination down and your fingers and your mind can be on that, that same wavelength, it's a lot easier. So for me, I, I would have no problem learning a trick in five minutes and then going out and performing it right there. Right. And I'll, I'll, be, I'll be able to get through it. Um. But card stuff, it's a part of my life. So when I go home, I love to just sit at a desk and shuffle or sit at a table and shuffle. and It's therapeutic, and um, I love it. What about the perception of magic? I feel like in popular culture, we've seen... Oh, it does not get any more douchey. We are nerds. We are Trekkies. <laughs> and it does not get any dorkier, and I love it. Um, sorry to interrupt your question there, but I'll just go out and throw it out there that, yeah, <laughs> magic has a uh, pretty nerdy perception, and I'm, I'm cool with it. But I, I was going to say, I thought it, I think it's been it's been changing. Like the days of Job on Arrested Development being the face of magic are gone. I, I think you see, you know, you see now you see me as a popular movie series coming out. Neil Patrick Harris is a huge advocate of, of magic. Like, don't you feel like, yes, yeah, sure, the perception's there. But don't you think more people are kind of appreciating the skill and the art behind the craft? Yeah, yeah, it definitely uh, it's, it's become less like traditional 
magician on stage in a tuxedo with a rabbit. I mean, that, that, that perception is kind of yeah. faded out, and that style's faded out. Uh, I've always thought magic is cool, but yeah, I, I definitely agree that uh, magic has become, uh, well, put it this way, it has a lot more street cred now. Right. You know, uh, and, and yeah, and, and dude, now you see me, The Prestige, all those, The Illusionist, dude, those are movies I love, and uh, I'm excited to see Now You See Me Too. I, I think it'll be cool, and um, yeah, I, I love it. What's your, as someone who performs intimate settings, focusing on the skill what do you think about the big bombastic illusionists, the David Copperfield, uh, Chris, you know, Chris Angel types? Do you feel like that's a different, a completely different art form, or just a different representation of magic? And you're and you're fine with it? Both. Yeah. Um, I think there's a lot of stage magicians that they don't do close up, and they don't do it because I think they don't have control of the room. Right. And they don't have they don't have control of the beat, and they don't have control of the pattern. They don't have control of hecklers. So it comes to personality and style. One is not better than the other. If you love magic, you love them both. Um, look, I, I'm a huge fan of Copperfield. I have been since I was a kid. I love his style. I love everything he does. His close-up magic's phenomenal. Um, the guys, I mean, the guys, the guys, a man, you know. Um, <laughs> right. But it is definitely from a performer standpoint. You can't even put the two in the same category because the skill set, the presentation, the prep, the planning, the pattern, the theater side, and the close-up side. I mean, it is literally two completely different worlds. You know, I think fans of yours are are very familiar with your just remarkable personal story. And I'm I'm not going to go too much into the into the detail, but um, you know, ha- coming from a home where. Uh, you know, your, your mother was, uh, tragically killed by your father. I have read certain interviews or profiles about you talking about how magic in, in its way, um, uh, was, uh, was therapeutic or, or a, a good refuge for dealing with that, you know, just mind boggling situation. And I, I'm just curious, is that like, is that just what, what role did learning magic, did honing the craft along with sports play in your journey from uh, that tragedy to where you are now? You know, what, um, uh, you know, for me, magic wasn't out. Magic was um, when I was a kid and then I'd gotten through foster homes. And I, I moved in with my aunt down in Southern California. Um, and I don't think I really realized this till later in life, but it was the one thing that if I sat at a table with a deck of cards, and I just shuffled or worked on a move. It was the one thing when I was a kid that I, I didn't think of anything else. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't think of, you know, losing my parents. I didn't think of the problems. I didn't think of the change. I didn't think of what I was going through emotionally as a kid. I literally was just in the moment of learning that trick. And, you know, if I was in Little League, I'd, I'd be at my position. I'm still thinking about stuff. You know, oh, my gosh, my mom's not in the crowd. And, um, you know, and, and at that matter, when you're that age, your your dad's gone, too. So you, you ultimately lose both your parents. Um. And so I took it with me everywhere I went. I was small. I could I could carry a deck of cards with me wherever I went. And even to this day, you know, if there's decisions I need to make about my career or life, I sit at a table. Right. And if I shuffle for 10 minutes or I shuffle for eight hours, it's all the same to me. And somehow when I'm done and, and I stand up, I, I just feel like I know the decision I'm comfortable with. And um, it's, it's totally therapeutic and... You know, uh, learning the close-up stuff also kind of taught me a lot about myself that, 
You know, when I was a kid getting the magic, it was a lot different than today. Today, there's YouTube and DVDs and all this instructional. Right. Well, when I, yeah, when I was learning it, it was a book that said, extend left forefinger A to corner B, rotate left <laughs> wrist over 180 degrees. Dude, it was the most complicated thing ever. So, you know, sure enough, when you're 13, and, and my reading comprehension is poor as it is, um, it kind of taught me that if I just stick with something, eventually I'll get it. It's going to be hard. And I'll struggle, but eventually, if I just want to do something, I'll figure it out and I'll learn it. And I kind of taught myself that lesson through magic. And so, sure enough, um, I, I, I've stuck with that. And I kind of uh, I learned that I like doing really tedious things over and over and over and search the perfect way. And you know, even in snapping in football, I'm a long snapper, so I snap 15 yards, I snap eight yards. It's the same for me, no matter what. And I'm always in search of that perfect rep, and I, and I love that tediousness of just doing something constant over and over and over, searching for that. Uh, and so I found two things that allow me to be able to do that, and uh, I've stuck with them. So when you see a kid who learned everything on YouTube videos, do you just go, like, you kids have it so easy these days, and, like, really call them out on it? But I've, I've grown fond of, uh, there's a magic store in Orange County called Magical Lauren Moore, and uh, it's in Westminster, California, and or Garden Grove, one of those two. And uh, they don't allow all that. It's old school. Like, if anything is videoed in this, in this store or this room, you're never allowed back. Oh, wow. And it's a, lot of, it's a lot of guys, you know, older magicians that learn the old school way and sharing and teaching and respecting other people's works. And instead of just seeing a trick and then saying, oh, I'm going to expose this and teaching the world. No, we're going to sit here and we're going to teach you, but you're going to respect it and it stays in here. So no videoing, no YouTube. We're going to learn, we're going to share, we're going to teach. Um, but we're not just going to expose each other just for the sake of doing that. Which brings another interesting thing. And I think a lot of magicians, or there's some magicians that are concerned about, well, there's all these shows exposing. You know, nobody cares. Like, nobody cares enough about that. When you go to a concert, you know what they're going to play. But you know what? It's your favorite song and you can't wait to hear it. You've heard it a million times. Right. And I think magic's the same way. People that go to magic shows, they love it. You know, I, I, look, guys, I, I hate to boost our egos here or, or deflate our egos. I don't think they really think we can disappear or fly. I'm just throwing <laughs> that out there. Don't ruin the fantasy for me, John. But you know what I mean? Like, hey, look, I'm not trying to be the bearer of bad news, but when you go down and you get, you know, stabbed with this sword and it goes through your body and you're spinning over it, I don't think that you, they think you kill yourself every night and then you come back from the dead. I just don't, you know, so. Um, but they go to see the art and the interpretation and they go to just be a kid again and just have fun. Um, and that's, that's been my style all along. I really don't care if you know what I'm going to do. I'll teach you a move. I'll teach you exactly what I'm doing. And then my challenge now is that 30 seconds later, I need to do that same move and have you believe in it just as much, if not more, than when you knew what I was doing. And not only that, but when I do that move 30 seconds later, I need you to forget that you even learned it. Now that's cool. I think that's a great point because I think you look at something like wrestling, which is enormously popular, and people, the audience will, will, will be in on the big lie. They understand it's fake, but all they want is the respect of Show go along with 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 it as the performer, and we will too. I also, when you say that, I it makes me think of like the old masked magician, you know, specials that were so controversial for revealing tricks. But when the guy finally kind of came out and said why he did it, he was like, 
I think magicians have been relying on the same crap for 20 years. We have to push the art forward. I'm just forcing you to admit what's going on. I didn't know. Do you have a take on that guy or no? I don't know anything about him, but I think it was, uh, I wanted the money and I didn't make it and I sold out oh. <laughs> and then I needed to, I, I, and then I needed to do a PR move to save myself. That's what I think. <laughs> That's uh, fair. Uh, but, That's fair. But, uh, but, but I don't know. But what's interesting about that is, is that's the take I had on it, too. He's right. It did force magicians to come up with way better techniques of doing right. very old tricks and making it better and more believable. And, you know, look, the world has progressed, and, and that might have forced magic to progress, to catch up with technology and to catch up with money and to catch up with all that and make it more believable. So whether whether that was the reason that magicians stepped their game up or not, who knows? It probably helped. But ultimately, it, it did help. It did help the business. Well, who are the innovators that, that inspired you the most? Like, wh- who, if people are, are listening to this and they, and they log online, they, they look at you, who do you want them to click through and watch next? Uh, I love this magician, Kim Sands. Uh, there's a, a pickpocket magician in Vegas named Apollo Robbins. Uh, there's a card magician named Bill Malone, who I love. Um, you know, Copperfield, Lance Burton, kind of the old school guys. Um, I, I like those guys. I know you have a show coming up. Um, in Atlantic City at the Borgata on uh, July 10th, it benefits uh, special needs children. Uh, without giving too much away, like what, what's the style of show going to be? What are you planning? Or do you have any any kind of new new things in the works? Yeah, there's always new things in the works. Um, you know, for me, when I'm on stage, I like more of the comedy style magic. Um, yeah. You know, I'm not really into. Well, one, I can't dance, so I'm not going to sit there and pretend like. And, and here's the thing, I like me personally. I love magic, but as a performer. I want to do magic. I don't want to dance around a ballet with a chick. Nobody, to me, I'm like, eh, all right, I'm bored of that. Like, I want to see something cool. You right. know what I mean? Uh, and I know that I'm a uh, short, fudgy, slow white guy that can't dance, nor does anybody want to see me dance. So I'm going <laughs> to avoid dancing. You know what I mean? Yeah. So um, it's going to be comedy. You know, it's for a great cause. My, my friend Tim Mooney got me involved. And um, basically what happens is there's, there's a special needs school in Jersey. And uh, his goal was to create an endowment so that these kids have a Christmas every year. And, uh, I, you know, some of them, most of them have no concept of money. So whatever they want for Christmas, they get, if it's a laptop, they get it. If it's a little tiny stuffed animal, then that's what they get. And sure enough, Santa Claus goes and visits this school every year and pretty much buys everything on these kids Christmas list. Uh, and they're, you know, they're special needs kids and, um, uh, obviously more on the extreme side and, uh, it's really, really cool. And, Santa's got some elves, and, you know, last year, uh, Frosty the Snowman visited the school, and so uh, this charity event, among others, helps raise money to do just that for these kids. Um, the other thing that I know you're so involved with um, is uh, the Teach Early campaign, and it, it really is a great effort to try to teach respect for women to uh, attack the root of domestic violence at the, uh, you know, at, the, at the youth level and at the core of the problem. Would you mind just giving us a little bit more information about your work there? And just clearly, given your backstory, this is an enormously important personal mission. But um, you know, we're we're huge supporters of it as well. So I'm just curious, uh, you know, what what people should know about about that work. Yeah, you know, I mean, the Ad Council does a great job, and and uh, domestic violence is a huge issue. And uh, you know, I, I think it stems from a lot of different places. It stems from um, insecurities, and and I also uh, I, I think it goes both ways. I think there's abusive men, and I think there's abusive women. And 
I think our, our goal and, and my goal when I got involved with this was to educate the youth to say, hey, you know what? If you're a man, it's cool to open your chick's door. Right. Like, it's cool to, to show chivalry, and it's cool to respect them. Um, and and so, you know, obviously with my background, you know, I had domestic violence in my household. Where my, my dad murdered my mom. And uh, to be a part of this and to be a part of that platform and, and obviously have the NFL as a platform and the Ad Council and to be able to share my story and uh, to educate uh, young and old. Um, it was just uh, just a very... Uh, welcoming fit for me and I was more than happy to do it and and the key again is just to educate uh, people to just respect one another and and live your life happy and you know what don't blame people don't don't hate people I think we should all forgive a little bit more and uh, you know for me forgiveness was not, nothing more than letting go of my own issues really and and being able to forgive myself and uh, not live with these burden and these clouds in my own head and um, when I learned that forgiveness was it wasn't a contest. It's not a, oh my gosh, you're one up on me or him. No, for me, forgiveness is nothing more for me to live happy and free and for me to live with a purpose and for me to think clearly. And uh, I had to forgive people in my life to be able to do that, to be able to not live with that weight on my shoulders. And, um, you know, that's that was kind of where I stood with that. I mean, John, uh, your story is nothing short of remarkable. Um, you know, and, and you're just one of the most interesting people that, you know, I think in the NFL, I think the magic is is so great. People should go, uh, they should follow you on Twitter. They should look online. There's a ton of videos of you doing various tricks that we would encourage people to go check out. It's it, You're so talented at it. And that's why we started the show is to talk to athletes to, to get a better sense of the passions they pursue away from football. So we can't thank you enough for coming on. We know, you know, we know you're out, um, you know, w- with friends and we don't mean to pull you away, but John, thank you so much. Uh, we really appreciate all the time. Yeah, we are. Cody Parkey is our kicker and it's, uh, it's his girlfriend, uh, probably future fiance's birthday. So yeah, I appreciate you guys. By the way, probably future fiance is really putting the pressure on somebody over there. So <laughs> this is on, this is going on out nationally, man. It's it's gonna have to be official pretty soon. And then yeah. are you are you doing yeah. any tricks? Do you carry a deck with you? Just rock it out at parties? I imagine you're like the most popular guy in the room after like two beers, dude. Oh, dude, I love it. Yeah, dude, I always got stuff on me. And you know what? If I have a few, that's when stuff gets wild and fun. <laughs> well, uh, put a card in someone's beer for us tonight for the Just Not Sports crew. And, John, thank you so much for, for coming on. I love you guys. Thank you very much. Today's show is sponsored by The Weatherneck. We spend a lot of time around athletes and super active people, and two things really stand out to us. They love staying active outdoors all year round, and they need quality equipment to do that. Enter The Weatherneck. The Weatherneck is a modern take on the bandana that's quick, quiet, clean, and comfortable, and it's designed specifically for performance outdoors. It features high-tech fabrics and powerful magnets that make it today's outdoor bandana, and it's comfortable. The center mesh section allows for full breath when active outdoors, and the wicking fabrics eliminate the nasty soaking wetness that can bunch up in fleeces. Everyone knows what it's like to put on like a knit scarf, try to be on a bike out in the cold. It's just awful. Your face gets super wet. And it's super convenient. It removes in one second with one hand. That's amazingly helpful if you're on the bike, on the run, or just outdoors doing your thing. I know the guys who created this. They are super smart, super passionate, the types of people I would trust. Go to theweatherneck.com for more information or to place an order, theweatherneck.com.
All right, that is our show for this week. If you did not like it, just remember the words of the immortal Malcolm Jenkins. The beauty, my friends, is in the imperfection. Subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes. Uh, leave us a message, justnotsports at gmail.com. Tweet us at justnotsports. Find us on Instagram. Find us on our Facebook page. Uh, any way you want to communicate to us, we are happy to. We take uh, show topic suggestions, guest suggestions. All right, let's end with some shout-outs. I want to give a big shout-out to Tim Mooney, who helped hook us up with John Dornbos on sh- very short notice. Um, really appreciate it. Sounds like those guys are working together on some really great charitable and foundation work. Joe, who do you want to shout out? I want to give a huge shout out to Scott Pollard. I, for people who don't know, I am a huge Survivor fan, and he was great. It, it was it was awesome reaching out to him and hearing his experiences and his thoughts from the show. I have God knows how many more questions that we didn't even get to talk about, just because I'm such a huge fan and. Uh, he was just an awesome guest to have. So uh, thank you so much for coming on and um, and being a great guest. Awesome. Gareth, what about you? Uh, yeah, big shout out this week is to the Brooklyn hipster dad rock band Parquet Courts. Uh, I know Connor Barwin's a fan. They came up in his column in, or his interview in Pitchfork this week as he was talking about his charitable concert that he's putting on his charitable indie rock concert he's putting on again in philadelphia this summer but i caught the parquet courts last week they were fantastic their new album human performance is great they put out three great albums in four years which is pretty damn impressive you should listen to it and if you're in the philadelphia area check out what connor barwin has going on uh, with his music festival as he's trying to make the world a better place, I believe it's called. Awesome. And I want to give a shout-out to Judy Batista because uh, I ended up downloading a lot of Van Halen songs that were very entertaining <laughs> as I put together a, a stone a stone patio this weekend. Hey, uh, Gareth, let's try something new. We got a great interview coming up next week about the art world. Uh, why don't you tell people a little bit about it? Uh, yeah, this was a great one. Brad found Desmond Mason, uh, former NBA player, has uh, a real a real art practice that he's undertaken, and he considers himself a very serious artist and always has uh, always has um, majored in art at Oklahoma State. And so we went deep with him. Deep. That'll air next week. Uh, yeah, I mean, look, I love art. I see a lot of gallery shows in New York. I've think it's it's at this point my favorite way to pass the time i love i love living with art i love sharing it with my kids and you know desmond is he's the real deal and he's taking this very seriously and it was fascinating to talk to somebody who's dedicated so much of their time to learning one skill and dedicating their life to the skill of basketball and then undertaking and really publicly exhibiting this other skill in their artistic life so stay tuned for that next week. Yeah, and before this, before that episode airs, check him out at D, D Mason Art on Twitter and Instagram. Get a feel for the pieces. It's, he's, he's awesome. So it was, yeah. it was a lot of fun. And Gareth, that this is like your wheelhouse, buddy. Like, uh, <laughs> taking over for me. I mean, I can talk a little Rothko and stuff, but like, I, I, I'm not great on the, uh, on the postmodern art scene. If you guys like Arshiel Gorky anecdotes, this interview has them. So stay tuned. <laughs> and uh, Adam's out this week. But what do you say? What do you say? We like Joe. Make a little extra work for you. Dig up Adam from the archives 
and have us have a, have them take us out. Yeah, we'll do a little rewind, uh, little rewind shout outs. I can do that. All, All right. right, set him up, Adam. How about disembodied Adam voice? Take it. Shout out to uh, my boy Uzi, Def Jeff, the legend, Little Swanee, Meech, Ron Mack, and I remember this time my other cousin Ron. And in the immortal words of Shaquille O'Neal, Booty Rappers. Booty rappers. Stay, Stay booty. booty.